Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast, connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning in to Building Health Equity, the Institute for Public Health Practices series highlighting health equity practice throughout Iowa. Over the course of the series, we will be inviting speakers to dive deeper into their experiences and health equity practice to serve as a learning enrichment opportunity for health department staff and anyone interested in building health equity. As a heads up, these podcasts have been reformatted from the original Building Health Equity webinar series recordings. All right. Hello, everyone. I am Trisha Kitzman, and welcome to the seventh installment of Building Health Equity Series, Disabilities Justice and Health Equity Practice. I'm the program coordinator with the Institute for Public Health Practice at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I will now turn it over to Michael and have you introduce yourself. Excellent. Uh, my name is Mike Honig. I am a program coordinator with the Center for Disabilities and Development. Um, Iowa's University Center for Excellence and Developmental Disabilities. I just actually recently retired from full-time employment where I worked there through um, August of uh, 2022, and I'm now back um, doing some part-time work that primarily focuses on health training. So I am super excited about this opportunity. I have a, a master's degree in rehabilitation counseling, but I've spent most of my uh, career working with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities in a training capacity and uh, training healthcare providers on accommodating people with disabilities. Um, I've been blind since birth and have acquired additional disabilities as an adult. Um, I'm an eight-year cancer survivor and um, also was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. So I do have a pretty significant lived experience and also supported a family member with chronic mental illness. So awesome. Anne, go ahead. My name is Ann Crotty. I am a program coordinator with the Iowa USED, which is Iowa's University Center for Excellence on Developmental Disabilities. I have a public health background and uh, a master's in public health from the University of Iowa and have worked for about probably 12 years or so in the disability field. Initially, I started with uh, Iowa's Title V program for children and youth with special health care needs which is child health specialty clinics. And uh, the Iowa USED provides a lot of disability advocacy and programming on things that impact people with disabilities across the state and strive to address a lot of the issues that are impacting people with disabilities and um, inequities. I do a lot of health work and also equity type work. So equity as it intersects with other identities uh, like racism, sexism, uh, LGBTQ issues, and things like that. There's a lot of overlap with disability there too. So we're looking at that. Awesome. Thanks, Anne. Well, you both have touched on this a little bit, but I'm going to ask you to expand a little bit more. And Mike, we'll kick it off with you. Could you give us um, a little bit of your background or expand on information on your background? How did you get into this area of work? And what exactly do you do? As I mentioned previously, I was trained as a rehabilitation counselor, and my I originally uh, worked for the Department for the Blind um, as a teacher for those who ha were losing their vision later on in life. So um, then I came to work for the university, as you said, as um, a self-advocacy training coordinator. And ironically, I just saw Dave, hey, Dave, uh, his name come through, and he was he and I uh, did some great partnership many years ago in the field of self-advocacy and, and helping people with disabilities learn about their rights. And interestingly enough, about 20, over 20 years ago now, we got, it was a research grant at the time to teach a program called Living Well with a Disability. And the idea was to really uh, promote uh, activity among people with disabilities along with healthy lifestyle changes. And um, that grant was um, a, a state federal partnership with the Iowa Department of Public Health. And we were able to secure that funding uh, for many years and expand 
to doing more health provider training, um, to just talk about systemic issues um, related to health access barriers. And so it wasn't what I necessarily signed up to do, but I have absolutely enjoyed um, the many opportunities I've had to just help make people more aware um, of disability issues. And so currently being retired uh, as a full-time employee, I still have the opportunity as a consultant to work with a variety of um, medical professionals, both um, active medical professionals and students on disability communication and advocacy, and also opportunities like this, where we really have a chance to do more of a brainstorming um, kind of thing related to public health. Um, I also partner uh, with some colleagues at CDD and also the Midwestern Public Health Training Center to produce uh, podcasts on disability and the, and the ex lived experience of people with disabilities and their families. Um, a shameless plug, we're always looking for guests who have um, backgrounds in this area uh, with lived experience and also people who are who have cultural um, related issues where there may be intersection of culture and disability would love to connect with you. So if anybody's interested, I'm sure that uh, Tricia and Cynthia can provide my contact information or better yet, I'll just put it in the chat. Wonderful. Thanks, Mike. Ian, go ahead. Yeah. And so I got into this field right after grad school. Uh, I didn't really know much at all about disability, um, like didn't have personal experience really coming into the field before I found this job at the University of Iowa a Hospital, but I really learned a lot about the world of disability and special health care needs at child health specialty clinics, and did a lot in health literacy and making sure that families of kids with special health care needs understood the material and learning about the experience of having a child with a special health care need, especially when you weren't expecting it. It kind of comes as a shock a lot of times for many families. And there's a whole process about what happens when you get a new diagnosis. Um, there's a really famous poem. Um, I don't remember the exact name, but it essentially is talking about um, I think it's Holland, something about that, but, and it, Italy. So you're expecting a trip to Italy and you're learning Italian and planning your trip to Italy and all the buying plane tickets and train tickets and everything like that. And then you find out you're going to Holland instead of Italy and you get there and you're all totally confused and you don't know where to go or what to do or who to meet and all this stuff. But once you get a little bit acquainted, you learn Holland is such a lovely place, you know? So that was kind of super helpful in learning about the disability experience uh, for a lot of families of kids with special health care needs. And then a few years ago, I switched to the Iowa said, which has kind of a lot of similar overlapping work, but it's specifically focused on people with uh, disabilities of all types and all ages rather than just kids with special healthcare needs like the other program was. Some of the different things that I work on are I provide staff support for the Olmstead Consumer Task Force, which is a task force of people with disabilities and family members that advocate on policy issues, a lot of equity work in looking at like intersections with racism and like ableism and things like that, or integrating that into our strategic plan oversee a lot of healthcare initiatives, like the healthcare provider training projects that Mike mentioned. And we also have newer projects that are focused on training people with intellectual and developmental disabilities to self-advocate in healthcare. And also things like um, providing sexual health education to people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, because a lot of times they don't receive that information at school or from family members. So, Wonderful. So from your experience, what are the most common gaps in health equity for individuals living with disabilities? Mike, I'll kick it off with you first. Wow. So I think just from a broad context, I would certainly say that 
Um, information is a big one um, that people with disabilities who may also be impacted by socioeconomic um, difficulties or perhaps a language barrier, or in my case, um, not being able to see printed material, that can be a, a, a big issue. Many times I think people get information about um, health appointments or concerns or whatever, and they just don't get that information uh, in a way that is meaningful to them. So I think that that, that is certainly um, a gap that we need to work on. Um, I think that just simply getting to appointments is very, very challenging for many people. You know, maybe you are um, having, you, you do not drive, so it may take you two or three uh, bus rides to get to an appointment if you're fortunate enough to live in a community that has bus service. Um, if you're in a rural community, that is even more challenging if you don't drive. You know, I've, I've um, I know that there are many situations in which people, you know, are, are fortunate enough to have families or um, maybe perhaps uh, church members or other friends that, that will be able to provide that transportation. But in many cases, that that is a huge barrier. Um, and I think that another one is just awareness. Um, we, we've been doing some trainings recently and have, have learned um, as we've done that, as we've tried to, to make the case why uh, disability training is so important, that we have learned how many medical professionals, uh, specifically physicians, it's often mentioned, are, are not comfortable um, having people with disabilities in their practice. And I'm sure there are many reasons for that. Uh, it could be a communication issue. It could be that they don't know how to perhaps treat some of the special needs that a person might have. Um, I've experienced it in many cases. Um, many times it's it's unintended, but people don't know what to say um, or how to react. Um, I'll, I'll just share an example and I'll turn it over to Anne. I mean, this may sh seem a little shocking to somebody, but or some of you that are listening, but um, I'm almost 60 years old. I've lived independently my entire adult life, and I was um, going to have a, an MRI done recently. And uh, the person that was the prep person said, well, I just need a couple minutes to change you. And I, I was just shocked. And I, I really do believe that there are, you know, I, I'm kind of immune to most things I thought until that one came out. Um, but I think that many times when people don't, you know, the attitudinal barriers or just um, unintended uh, faux pas like that make a person less likely to want to go back to, to, to access care. So I'll stop there. And, and I know you've got lots to say on this one. I do. Yeah. So first off, I would say that overall, it seems like disability is so often an afterthought especially when thinking about other types of equity work, it seems like people for some reason often forget or don't consider that disability is an underserved population as well. Or that they don't know that people with disabilities have health disparities too. Even though they rely more on healthcare, they have significant troubles in accessing healthcare, in accessing preventative care, in accessing uh, and the behaviors that help people stay healthy, like core public health behaviors, uh, and uh, prevalence increases with age too. And so every single one of us pretty much are going to have a disability at some point or are going to be close to a family member that does. You know, So we really need to think about disability and integrate disability into every single thing that we do within public health. Super important there. But specific disparities, access to health and dental care are huge. Mike mentioned the attitudes of healthcare providers. Uh, a big reason for that is implicit bias. And there's a lot of research too around things like quality of life and differences that healthcare providers and the rest of society to believe about people with disabilities having lower quality of life than those without disabilities, believing that normal is better than having a disability. Uh, an example might be the belief that everyone wants to hear, everyone should hear, and everyone suffers if they cannot hear. 
when in reality, a lot of people that are deaf say, no, I am absolutely living my best life. I have no quality of life issues. The problem, problems that I encounter are when society believes that I'm broken because I have a disability and I need to be fixed in order to participate in society. When in reality, society needs to adapt to meet the needs of people with disabilities. See that, that flip, the switch and perspective. Other big things with access to healthcare are lack of accessible medical equipment. Things like ex accessible exam tables that can be raised and lowered which is a huge barrier in accessing preventative care like pap smears. Also um, accessible mammography equipment. Imagine if you can't get a, a mammography because you use a wheelchair. And there are lots and lots of women that do not get mammographies or mammograms because of that reason. Access to dental care, specifically for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities because a lot of the staff and family caregivers don't know how to appropriately care and help people brush their teeth when someone might be uncomfortable having things in their mouth, you know? So people might go years or decades without having a dental exam. I met someone a few years or a few weeks ago that had, hadn't been to the dentist in a decade for cleaning, you know? Um, also, lack of inclusive health and wellness services like recreation opportunities in the community. A lot of that's due to attitudes, sometimes also things like uh, equipment or lack of equipment. Uh, and then let's see a lot of intersections with things like housing, inaccessible housing, inaffordable housing too. Uh, I know someone, a friend of a coworker whose brother they bought a new house um, a few years, maybe a year or two ago, but cannot use the basement at all because it's inaccessible. But it was a place they could afford, you know. But imagine just not being able to use half of your house. I would be so offended by that. And then the finally, the other big thing I would throw out there is the direct care workforce crisis, which I'm, I'm sure a lot of people know about this as it relates to the elderly and services finding assistance for in-home help, you know, but it's a huge impact on people with disabilities too, because they need someone to say, help them get dressed in the morning. If you can't find someone to help you get dressed in the morning, you don't get out of bed. You don't go to the restroom. And so that means someone is either left laying in bed in an undignified position, or they have to move to an institution. And someone that should not be in an institution that doesn't want to be there, they could be going to school or could be working, but it's they're not just because the state isn't paying those workers enough to compete with jobs at McDonald's, you know? Some tough situations. Mm-hmm. You both have touched on this a little bit. Um, I'm going to have you expand a little bit more. What are the different types of barriers to healthcare um, or other areas of health? It could be other, um, maybe not accessing healthcare, but maybe some of the other social determinants of health, transportation, um, food insecurities, those sorts of things um, for in, that exist or you've seen barriers for individuals with disabilities. Mike, I know you touched on transportation being a huge barrier. Have you or in the work you've done um, intersected with any other? Oh, absolutely. And it's not even just people I work with, um, but it is people that I have you know, a number of friends that are that are seniors and maybe their eyes don't work as well as they once did. And so things like um, medication labels. So, you know, one of the things that's, that's um, great is that the that there are some technologies out there which um, will allow people that are totally blind, if the pharmacy is set up to make this happen, to um, be able to bring in a it's called script talk and it's a little it's a barcode reader basically and if if uh, the pharmacy which they are supposed to be doing that is set set that up so that a person will be able to um, 
read the labels uh, um, regarding um, dosages and numbers of time per day and that sort of thing. I don't know that a lot of pharmacies are still aware of that. Um, so that's one issue, but even um, for just print that comes out on prescription labels and just over the counters, many times people say, I just struggle to read this. I can't see it. I have been in several situations where the pharmacists will say, I'm sorry, that's, that's, that's what we get. And so um, that has been an issue. Um, I have not taken advantage of the script talk. And so I have had situations where a pharmacist will hand me medications and, and not give me any further information. And I'm left asking, and I'm, I'm a pretty assertive person. So I will ask that question, but I think, and you know, whether it's a person that's blind or just in general, um, you know, there should always be confirmation that, um, that a person knows what they're supposed to do um, with their medication. So I think that that is certainly, you know, a significant barrier. Um, I believe that, um, you know, in addition to the transportation, um, I, I do think that um, just a, if a person has, has um, had a negative experience, I think that can, that can certainly be a problem and touched on some of um, the physical barriers that people um, with disabilities face. If there's not an accessible exam table, for instance, um, bariatric patients. I, I have a, a friend and former colleague whose mother um, was obese, and not only did they oftentimes not have the equipment to be able to, to lift her to an appropriate height to do a thorough exam, um, but they also um, from time to time would make disparaging comments to make it to the point where she would feel did not want to go back there. Um, another example is sexual health and touched on that a little bit as well previously that um, the CDD, the USED is taking on some new training initiatives um, to teach um, so sexual self-advocacy. I think the opposite, the, or I shouldn't say the opposite, the other side of that coin is that many times um, healthcare providers um, are in situations where they don't necessarily ask about sexual activity, reproduction, and so forth among people with disabilities. I know that one time um, a few years ago, we were doing a, um, a training where we had um, some medical students working with some uh, individuals with disabilities and have it, they had patient encounters. And when we got out into the full, uh, we did a debriefing. And one of the gentlemen who had come in as a patient who um, has cerebral palsy, who was at that time was in his 50s, said that he was so grateful that this was the first time that uh, a physician had ever asked him about whether he was sexually active, because there is still a stereotype out there that people with disabilities are asexual. So um, I think that's, that's very, very uh, an issue that uh, needs to be addressed. And I appreciate your comment, Emma, about health literacy. And I think um, that is an issue that transcends disability and goes into um, English language learners, people who, who struggle with reading and are uh, embarrassed to ask questions. Um, they don't wanna feel quote unquote stupid. And so they, they don't ask questions. I know at one time um, we had a pretty strong health literacy alliance in the state and um, don't think that that's in place as much as it was. Um, but I do know that many healthcare institutions are really embracing um, that. I was just sharing with um, a friend recently that I'm in a, for my cancer, I'm in a clinical trial now. And one of the things that I had to do was consent to the research terms. And whoever created the document was a, it was a very much in plain language so that, you know, it was probably at a fifth or sixth grade level. And even though I might not have needed that, so many people might. And um, being proactive about that was pretty amazing. So um, I'll stop there and turn it over to Ann. Yeah, thanks, Mike. So I'll add a little bit more on the sexual health and lack of sexual um, education issue. So when kids don't get that in schools, a lot of times they don't, uh, or families or others are assuming that 
they have don't have a desire to have sex. They're not going to, you know, they don't know how to talk about it with them. But kids are out in the same society as everyone else. They're looking at the same media, you know, they're going to grow up, they're going to be in relationships. So they need that information. Um, and so a lot of times when kids don't get that information, think about, especially thinking about boys, there have been cases where they don't get any sex ed or um, conversations about what are, how do you have boundaries in, re in relationships? How do you respect boundaries from someone else? They um, expressed a desire to, towards a woman, you know, that woman did not reciprocate, but then that young man was charged with stalking and ended up in jail, you know, and think about how traumatic that would be for that young man and the, everyone, you know, to know that it, this could have been prevented with appropriate education and communication. Another example along the lines of healthcare is accessible scales. So I think about every single time that I go to the, doc the doctor, they weigh me, you know, they take my blood pressure more often than I would prefer sometimes, you know, but there's such a lack of uh, accessible scales that are, I mean, there are often healthcare provider offices do not have an accessible scale that's usable by someone with a wheelchair. And so people will go decades without ever knowing their true weight. You know, it, it's so offensive to think about that. And it's just another example of how disability is an afterthought or not considered at all. So. Thank you both. I appreciate the sharing the additional information. Mm -hmm. So next question. What resources or support options are already available in Iowa for those living with disabilities? Mike, do you want to kick it off? Sure. Uh, so, you know, I um, put in another shameless plug, um, but I, I, I feel like the, you said, um, particularly Anne right now as, as overseeing a number of these programs um, is a great resource for, for you that... Um, may want to make some changes, um, may want to explore further how um, you can change practices to, to be more inclusive of, of people with disabilities um, and their families. I think that um, in areas where centers for independent living exist, they really have a, a great, op great resources to help you, you know, to start thinking about some of these issues and figuring out how to be more inclusive. Um, I know that we're going to talk um, a little bit more about um, developing partnerships and coalitions. Um, I know that we have at least one public health uh, administrator here that has done a wonderful job of uh, bringing uh, people with disabilities together to, um, along with public health uh, officials to, um, to really make a difference in, in, in planning. Um, I think that um, the Department of Public Health, and Anne, maybe you can clarify because I'm not exactly sure what all they are doing now, but I know that when I was working full-time at CDD and worked with the Disability and Injury Prevention um, Group, they really had some, um, Maggie Ferguson, some of you probably know is there and, and um, is a very um, strong disability advocate. And so I think of somebody um, like like her is is definitely a resource, um, and I also think people with disabilities, you know, ourselves are, um, and and again, that's a pretty broad, I you know, statement to say. Um, but if you if you do know uh, people with disabilities, whether if you're in practice or whether you are, um, you know, just in, within your own families um, or have other connections, um, can can be a great resource along with. Um, the many, many disability-related groups in Iowa, whether they're the ARC, um, the MS societies around the state, brain injury groups, to, to understand what some of those specific disabilities um, deal with and, and how you as public health folks could make a difference. Um, at the Center for Disabilities and Development, there is um, a program called Iowa Compass, and they provide 
um, many resources across topics. It's a searchable database. They're also staffed. And also um, the um, Disability Resource Library is also housed at CDD. And there are many, many uh, publications and resources that are available both um, online and still in hard copy. And, and that is um, that service is free for individuals um, across the state. So um, there's a start. And Anne, you can uh, jump in here and fill in lots of the rest. Yeah. So I would add um, there are a few resources at the national level, too. Like uh, there's a resource through NACHO. The, it's a NACHO Disability Toolbox has some resources on like training on disability. And we're happy to offer training and stuff too with the, through the USAID. There's an organization through the Association of University Centers on Disabilities and a partnership with the American Public Health Association. It's called Public Health is for Everyone. That's documenting resources from other health departments uh, nationwide and issues that are integrating disability into their work. I'll also throw out uh, and offer kudos to one of the panelists who I saw come through, Angela Drent. We did a, a few webinars a few years ago as part of our Inclusive Health and Wellness Grant with the Siouxland District Health Department on building inclusive health coalitions and doing a CHI assessment. So CHI assessment stands for Community Health Inclusion Index Assessment, which is a pretty thorough assessment that they use to go into a, uh, a health facility or like a wellness workout type facility and used that to identify a whole bunch of changes and then worked with the facility and some funding that we provided them to make those changes. So yeah, Siouxland District Health Department has done a lot of awesome work in that. And then also they created an inclusive health coalition to get the perspective of people with disabilities on uh, different policy issues that they were encountering and work that they were doing before it was finalized to make sure that projects were inclusive. And does the national, um, what used to be NICPED, National Center on Health, Physical Activity and Disability, are they still around and going strong? And they are, yeah. So that would uh, be believe, another. Yeah, that's another good resource. Um, and then, so one other thing I would throw out too, we had a grant a few years ago, we created an inclusive image library as part of that, uh, a grant with the National Center on Health, Physical Activity and Disability, because it's really difficult sometimes to find pictures of kids with disability, not just kids, people with disabilities, where disability is portrayed in a positive way. A lot of times, especially in healthcare, Disability is portrayed as you're sick. Uh, it's not a positive thing. You're in a dependent role a lot of the time, which is not something that you want to be portraying, especially when thinking about physical activity, you know? And so we had a grant through NICPAD to promote inclusive health and wellness. And one of the things we did was this inclusive image library of pictures of kids with disabilities that were also pictured with it with kids that don't have disabilities, you know, so promoting community inclusion where disability is accepted. It's fun, you know, have, out having fun. And so I'll post the link to that in a minute too. Awesome. And we'll make sure when we go to post this video um, recording that we have some of these links along with the, um, with the posting as well. Um, Angela also just wanted to point out that the CHI assessment can really be used at any facility or business. Um, she put that in the chat, but I just wanted to make sure folks saw that, um, that it's not just something that, you know, is done at a, maybe a wellness center. You could really use that assessment in any business or um, facility in your community. Yeah, they, they also have different types of assessments. There's an on-site assessment. They have policy assessments or no, I think it's called organizational assessments. And there's one other, um, 
community-wide assessment. Yeah, so it's, uh, that community-wide wide one is a lot more of a macro type of assessment, but it's good to do all three how to think about different things. Wonderful. You know, and I don't know if this is so much a resource, but um, I, just by chance about, I don't know, a year ago or so, I was on the bike path. I live about a block and a half from the bike path. And um, I ran in, well, not literally ran into, but I had a wonderful conversation with a physician who was involved in in organizing a walking group here in, in the Quad Cities where I live. And, and she said, you know, I never thought about reaching out to people with disabilities to be a part of something like this. And then she saw me on the bike path and said, you know, so, you know, again, um, there's not like one library or, or director where you can go to find all the people with disabilities in your county, but just thinking about ways, whether it's, you know, again, through some of these advocacy groups, through centers for independent living, those kinds of places to get, to get the word out there that, because until we had that chance encounter, I had no idea that there was a, a walking group in the Quad Cities, so. Wonderful. Are there any specific resources you would recommend for health departments or other organizations looking to promote health equity for those with, in, um, with disabilities? I know you guys have shared um, the link with the image library, so maybe incorporating some of those images into their brochures or their community health needs assessments, their CHA or CHIPS. Um, or their annual reports, other other resources that might be good starting points for maybe an organization or health department that hasn't really maybe thought about disabilities and ensuring that they are um, welcoming to folks with disabilities. And so I have a few ideas. So we have a handout on disability etiquette that the USAID created and um, I guess I, I can also share the one that the Iowa's Developmental Disabilities Council created, which is, I think, a little bit broader. It's less healthcare specific, but I'll share both. You know, you can choose which one you want. Also, the Iowa USAID created a training on how to make sure that documents and websites and YouTube videos and things like that are accessible to people with disabilities. There's so much you can do around that. And it, a lot of it's really simple little fixes once you know like what font size you need to be using, what color contrast you need to be using on PowerPoint presentations and with flyers. It's super easy to make those changes. Uh, I noticed that I think Margaret just posted the Centers for Independent Living. Excellent partners. <laughs> Reach out to them reach out to the USEDs or the USED in Iowa. We want to work with you on local projects and we can help you integrate disability into your work. And could you just remind folks what USED stands for? Right, University Center for Excellence on Dis Developmental Disabilities. Even though it has developmental disabilities in the title, we are all about all disabilities to not just developmental disabilities, so. You know, and I would, I would just like to expand a little bit on Anne's comment about the, the websites. And that is such a critical thing, you know, not only, of course, the font sizes and the color contrast and everything, but making sure that you're, um, I'm, I'm navigating this entire webinar using um, a, a screen reading program called JAWS. I think somebody needed to uh, be creative one day. And it's actually stands for Job Access for Windows with Speech. And many times there are images that are not labeled. You know, there's an entire... Uh, tutorial, and I think that's included also in in the uh, the USED training, and that um, talks about some of the do's and don'ts to ensure um, you know that you're um, if you know if you for instance have JPEG files for those of you that know, and, and this isn't just for healthcare providers, but even like for a website like with a, a public health department, or I know that we've got you know health and human services folks on. Um, things that, um, you know, there are um, drop downs that if they're not configured correctly, um, do not work, you know, that, that are driven based on um, navigation with a mouse. So those are issues that really, and, and that's how I manage my, all of my healthcare. Um, now that I'm, you know, for instance, doing the, the cancer thing again, and having to go in and, 
you know, check messages, check test results, all those uh, sorts of things. Um, fortunately, our portal is is very very accessible, but they aren't always. <laughs> so again, it is a it's a critical piece um, for the for those of you that. Well, which is pretty much everyone. I think that you know you're communicating with a with a public, uh, you're a public facing organization. Oh. Awesome. So I'm going to go to our next question. Um, what are some of the first, or maybe more importantly, the most important steps that you have seen to adopt that showing promising results in either creating a more inclusive um, environment or reducing health disparities in the population with disabilities. Mike, do you want to kick that one off? Um, sure. I think so. Anne's example um, of working with group with uh, public health departments like um, Siouxland, um, I think that's that's a huge gain for us as uh, disability advocates and for you know people with disabilities that are accessing public health, um, which you know um, again just um, with their health department being so proactive and helping to create a coalition. And, and I know there are other um, counties that have done that as well through the disability and health grant that we had. I think Carroll County was one. I think there was some work in Johnson County and you can expand on that. So I think, you know, bringing people with disabilities to the conversation, I think is certainly one. Um, I guess I'm, I'm very proud of, and, and I know this is a, a little bit more of a, a niche that many of you might not work directly with, but you know, providing disability etiquette and accommodations training. Um, our, our primary audience over the years has been um, students in a variety of health sciences programs, but we have been fortunate um, over the past few years to expand that to practicing professionals. And I know that Anne and a group of colleagues just within the last two or three weeks had an opportunity to, um, to do that. Uh, with uh, the hospital-wide audience. I, I think any opportunity that you have to provide that sort of disability etiquette training, again, to uh, go back on a comment that Ann made earlier about not being an afterthought. I think many times um, people are, are just not aware of how, um, when, when, when they don't have that etiquette training, how, how difficult. It makes things for a person with a disability. And I know this is maybe a little bit off um, topic, but I just want to explain, I just give a, a quick vignette um, to explain how, how uh, disability etiquette types of training can, can really help. I was walking through the hospital the other day, and there's an area where people are checking in. And um, it's I, a couple times I have gone a little bit too far um, and actually walked into that area rather than uh, making a turn to avoid it. The person at the front desk saw me coming, and instead of just saying, "You know, sir, take your, you need to take a couple steps back and turn to the right," yelled very loudly for um, another staff member who had helped in the past, and it was embarrassing for me. It disrupted the waiting room. And it could have been so easily avoided. So any, any, um, whether you are a hospital, whether you're a public a health department, I know we have some, you know, some visiting nurse, uh, uh, in-home visiting nurses on the call, at least one that, you know, giving training opportunities uh, to your, the, the people that um, you're working with. Um, and supporting, I think can, can really go a long way just to, uh, so those would be a couple of steps, um, you know, the, the building health coalitions and then the, uh, the disability etiquette training. So, Anne? Yeah, so I would start off by suggesting that you focus on integrating disability into all of your programming. There are lots of disparities around things like people with disabilities are more likely to smoke, more likely to be overweight and obese, less likely to get uh, preventative care, you know, all these different things that within our smoking programs that public health does, we need to be thinking about disability and tailoring projects to reach people with disabilities too. Because if we aren't, there's a segment of the population that is flying under the radar that we're not being as effective as we could be you know, by not acknowledging the disability. And sometimes people with disabilities might smoke for different reasons 
than those without disabilities, you know. Um, uh, oh, there's a disparity with diabetes too. Like three to five times more likely to have diabetes, I read, which is just shocking to me. And a lot of people don't know that they have those, there, there are those disparities that are out there working in the field. By just having a few tiny little tweaks, we could change and dramatically uh, reach a larger amount of the population. Also, things like intentionally seek the perspectives of people with disabilities when doing a needs assessment. Um, include people with disabilities on community or committees. We mentioned the inclusive health coalitions a little bit earlier. I would suggest paying people with disabilities for their time, like giving a stipend if you can. It was pointed out to me that, that a lot of people like us that are professionals, we go to committee meetings like that and it's our work time. So we do get paid for it in that fashion, but there are, it's, it's a little bit offensive even to ask people with disabilities or community members to come and give feedback on something on a regular basis but not pay them for their time and perspective, you know? Um, so that's something that you said is always doing right now with the $50 stipend, you know, and you can. And then finally, I would say disaggregate data whenever you can. An example of this that I know is super helpful, pretty easy to do was when Iowa Department of Public Health added a question on disability to the Iowa Youth Survey. And all it took was Maggie Ferguson saying to her coworker, can we add a question on disability? What question do you want? You know, And the question was like the, something about the percentage of kids with disability. Do I identify as having a disability or not? I think. So yeah, sometimes it's not as easy or not as difficult <laughs> as we think it'll be. And when you were talking about diabetes, it made me think about a partnership that we had. I think it was before you came on board, but there was uh, with one of our disability and health grants, we set up a partnership between, I think it happened to be Hy-Vee, but it really could be any grocery or, you know, um, supermarket that, that hired a nutritionist, a dietitian, and they, they, the dietitian conducted some classes with um, people that were served through a, an organization which served intellectual people with intellectual and developmental disabilities about healthy eating. And interestingly enough, it um, transferred to many of the staff members that went through the classes too. And they really um, changed their, their eating habits and things that they purchased and everything. So, you know, just developing those kinds of partnerships can, can make a big difference. Wonderful. Last question. You both have kind of touched on it, but um, any other suggestions for local public health agencies or other nonprofits or other organizations that may be on the call um, to steps that they should be thinking about as they are pivoting to start addressing health inequities and specifically for the population with disabilities? Any other recommendations, suggestions, or things that they need to be considering as they're possibly working on budgets? I think one of the things when I think about when I worked at um, one of the local health departments, we were getting ready to move into a new brand new building and working with the clinic staff, um, they we did get, um, we advocated hard to be able to get um, electric beds um, or exam tables so we could lower and raise them, not the standard old beds that we had that were not accessible to probably half the population mm. we served um, because they were so old and um, not useful. So that was something I know that that health department did during that time to make sure that that was one one step in the right direction. Um, there's probably many more things that we did as well, or still needed, or still needed to do. But um, knowing that that was one piece that was a huge um, win for us because it's when it comes to budgets, there they can be it can be very tough to navigate some of those changes that are needed. Um, so, what what recommendations would you possibly have for for some of the organizations that are online today? Yeah, so I, I'm thinking about the uh, issue of the adult size changing tables as another win. You know, there's a lot of work that went into that one too, but 
thinking about the impact of that and meaning that so now there are adult size changing tables in rest stops on inter state interstates, you know, and that allows people with disabilities to travel to healthcare appointments or recreation across the state when otherwise they couldn't because they couldn't stop to use the restroom. You know, it's, it's mind boggling to me that we had that issue. Um, and so I would, I guess I would throw it out too to our audience and say, what issues do you see in your community and what opportunities do you see? Maybe you can put some of those ideas in the chat. Opportunities for partnership. Um, Mike, any other ideas too? Um, you know, I guess the only other thing that I think when you were telling sharing that um, anecdote, uh, Tricia, I thought you were going to say, well, we made we wanted to make sure that the building was accessible because we still run into, you know, when people when remodels are happening and that that there are maybe the maybe you can get in the door, but then the bathrooms aren't wide enough, you know, if that's an issue. So I think the, you know, the physical accessibility, and then we've we've talked a lot about the information access piece. But um, you know, just thinking proactively, um, as you're whether you're developing a website, you're you know build doing new construction um, to make sure that you are, um, are are considering the needs of people with all kinds of disabilities. Wonderful, and again, thank you so much for attending today. We really appreciate it. And Mike and Ann, again, thank you for sharing your expertise and the work that you've been doing over the past several years. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for the great questions and participation. Thank you for joining us today. Special thanks to Trisha Kitzman, Cynthia Maharani, Natalie Peters, Melissa Richland, and the speakers who have shared their expertise with us. Theme music for the Building Health Equity podcast series was composed and produced by Dave Hoeing and Roger Heilman. Funding for the Building Health Equity Initiative is provided by the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services. Please see the podcast notes for an evaluation link and transcript. For additional resources and information, or to view the video webinar recordings, please be sure to visit www.buildinghealthequity.com.